Well, hey everybody, I'm Adam Shell, the pastor at Melbourne Heights, and welcome to our sermon podcast. In this episode of our podcast, we are finishing up a series of sermons that we've been calling The Red and the Blue, where we've been talking about how we, as followers of Jesus, can live out our faith in the face of partisan politics in our world today. And we've definitely seen those partisan politics at play over the last few days as votes have been counted in this year's presidential election. But even though a winner has been projected, that doesn't mean that we should be celebrating the outcome or mourning a loss. What we need to be doing right now is taking stock about where we are as a nation and seeing if we're living up to the ideals that were set forth by our founding fathers about creating a more perfect union. And what we're going to be talking about in today's sermon is the work that we need to do to get to be that more perfect union. So let's get right into this week's episode. So as we come together to worship today, we are just five days removed from Election Day. And even though this year's election has been different due largely to the precautions we've had to take because of COVID-19 and a massive increase in the number of absentee ballots that were cast, some things never change. Now that we are a few days removed from the election and most of our ballots have been counted, about half of all Americans are celebrating that their candidate is in the lead. And the other half of Americans, well, they're disappointed that their candidate isn't. But right now, I think every American is ready to agree that we just want every last vote to be counted and every legal challenge to be resolved so that we know who our president will be come January 20th of next year. But if I'm being completely honest with you today, I'm not feeling excited that my preferred candidate is in the lead or disappointed that the person that I voted for isn't. And I'm not here to tell you that our nation is going to be saved by the guy that is leading the presidential race or that we're doomed because the other guy isn't. And that's because I just don't see election day as a day when one party or one candidate wins and the other party or candidate loses. Instead, I see election day as a chance for us to reflect on and try to live up to the words that Governor Morris, a man who has been called the penman of the Constitution, wrote in the preamble to our Constitution, where he spoke of forming a more perfect union. And what is that more perfect union supposed to look like? Well, I think Thomas Jefferson gave us a pretty good standard for a more perfect union in the Declaration of Independence when he wrote these words. He wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, as Thomas Jefferson sat at his desk paying meticulous attention to each of these words, he was writing about problems of a bygone era. Jefferson wrote of an era when kings were still kings, and not merely figureheads that presided over the pomp and circumstance of a nation. Jefferson wrote of an era when one man was literally in control of the lives of millions of people living in his kingdom, and that one man was free to do whatever he desired. So Jefferson declared that we have rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness because these rights had been denied to the American colonists by the British monarchy for a long, long time. But ever since these words were penned, they've told us of what our great experiment, as George Washington called it, has been striving to accomplish for centuries. 
And even though our nation and our world has greatly changed over the years, these words, they still give us a way to measure the more perfect union that we're trying to form together. So clearly, the ideals and the inalienable rights that Thomas Jefferson wrote of are not just the rhetoric of a 244-year-old document. Jefferson's words, they have seeped from the pages of the Declaration of Independence, and they have pervaded nearly every aspect of American culture today. So today, we as Americans, we talk about our right to vote. But that doesn't just mean that we're talking about our right to vote for the next president of the United States when an election rolls around. It also means that we talk about our right to vote so that we can send somebody home from Dancing with the Stars. And we as Americans, when we talk about our freedom to choose for ourselves, that doesn't just mean that we get the freedom to choose to support a political party or a candidate. It also means that we get to choose what church we're going to attend. Or it gives us the choice of which brand of cereal we want to pick out when we're in the grocery store. And as Americans, we know, we know that these unalienable rights are supposed to be guaranteed to every single American. As a matter of fact, one of our most cherished cultural landmarks makes this point crystal clear. All you have to do is stop and read the inscription at the base of the Statue of Liberty. That inscription reads, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. And that's what our nation is supposed to be about. We're supposed to be a place where the tired, the poor, and the huddled masses can breathe free. We're supposed to be a place where everyone has freedom, independence, and unalienable rights. We're supposed to be a place where everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But here's my question for you. If the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are the measuring sticks for our success as a nation, then how are we really doing? Can we say that we are forming a more perfect union where everyone has the right to life when we live in a nation with the highest murder rate in the industrialized world? Or can we say that we are forming a more perfect union where everyone has the right to life when we live in a nation that still has and uses the death penalty? Can we say that we are forming a more perfect union where everyone has the right to life when some of the men and women who have spent the last few days making sure that every ballot that was cast in the 2020 election has been counted have also been receiving death threats? Can we say, that we are forming a more perfect union where everyone has the right to life when we have seen the way that people of color like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor have been treated? Or can we say, can we say that we are forming a more perfect union where everyone has the right to liberty when we live in a nation where the 600 wealthiest people in our nation saw their fortunes increase by over $400 billion during a pandemic that cost 38 million Americans their jobs? Can we say that we are forming a more perfect union where everyone has the right to liberty when we live in a nation where 40 million people struggle with hunger and 15 million people don't have access to enough food to feed their families? Can we say, 
Can we say that we are forming a more perfect union where everyone has the right to liberty when we live in a nation where one of our political candidates has been working to make sure that every vote that was cast last week isn't counted? Or can we say, can we say that we are forming a more perfect union where everyone has the right to happiness when we live in a nation that still stigmatizes mental health? Can we say that we are forming a more perfect union where everyone has the right to happiness when we live in a nation where one out of every eight adults struggles with both alcohol and drug use disorders simultaneously? Or can we say that we are forming a more perfect union where everyone has the right to happiness when we live in a nation where half of all American children will witness the breakup of a parent's marriage? The truth is that if we want to measure the success of our nation based on the unalienable rights that our Declaration of Independence describes, then it really doesn't matter if the candidate that you voted for is winning this election. Because none of us have that much that we can celebrate. We cannot celebrate the life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness that is described by our founding fathers when life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness are still being denied to so many people. So maybe. Maybe instead of celebrating the results of this year's election or lamenting a pending loss, we should all step back and take stock of where we are as a nation right now. Maybe we should pay more attention to the areas where our nation as a whole and we as individuals are still coming up short. And maybe, maybe instead of thinking that the winner of this year's election will either save us all or condemn us all, we all need to work together to fix the problems that we have so that we can form that more perfect union that we're supposed to have. Maybe. Maybe this is why some of Jesus' words have been ringing in my mind as I've prepared today's sermon, like the bells of the Liberty Bell ring across our nation on the 4th of July. After all, Jesus' words found in Matthew chapter 11 are just as relevant today as they were when they were spoken centuries ago. And just as a reminder for you right now, the book of Matthew is one of four books in the Bible that we call the Gospels. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we call these four books the Gospels because the word gospel, well, it means good news. In each one of these four books, they tell us the good news of who Jesus is. So these books, they are all essentially biographies of Jesus. So these books are going to tell us about Jesus' birth and his baptism. And these books are going to tell us about Jesus' ministry and Jesus' miracles. And in the passage that we're going to be reading today, in Matthew chapter 11, we're going to be told part of what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 11, and we'll start reading together in verse 16. Here's what Jesus says. To what will I compare this generation? It's like a child sitting in the marketplace is calling out to the others. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a funeral song and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking. And they say he was a demon. Yet the Son of Man came eating and drinking. And they say, look, a glutton and a drunk, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved to be right by her works. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
because you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have shown them to babies. Indeed, Father, this brings you happiness. My Father has handed all things over to me. No one knows the Son except the Father, and nobody knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wants to reveal him. Come to me, all who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear. My burden is light. So clearly, the words that Jesus speaks in this passage inspire the inscription that I mentioned earlier in the sermon that are found on the Statue of Liberty. And if we as Americans are called to live up to the inscription that we find on the Statue of Liberty, or the words that flowed from the feather quills of Thomas Jefferson onto our Declaration of Independence, then we, as Christians, we are called to live up to the words that Jesus spoke in this passage. When he said, Come to me, all you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble, and you will find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear, and my burden is light. But if this is our standard as followers of Jesus, we're falling short in this case too. And I think Brian McLaren, who is a prominent pastor, author, speaker, and leading figure in the emerging church movement, illustrates this point well in a story that he shares in his book, Everything Must Change. As Brian McLaren writes, It was May 1994. My daughter and I joined a group of 55 young leaders at a conference center near Bujumbura. Most were from the Tutsi and Hutu tribes from Rwanda and Burundi. And there were even a few Twa, also known as pygmies, who happened to be one of the most ill-treated people groups on the entire planet. As well, there were several guests from Uganda and eastern Congo. Their homelands? They were a random sample of the most violent, poverty-stricken, and dangerous countries in the world. At our first meeting, I remember looking through the windows as Claude began to speak. The mountains east of Bujumbura, rising hazy and brown in the mid-morning light. He spoke in his native tongue, Karundi, which was translated into French for the Congolese participants, and it was whispered into English to my daughter and me. Here's what he said. Friends, most of you know me. You know that I am the son of a preacher, and as a result I grew up going to church all the time, maybe five times a week. What may surprise you, though, is to learn that in all my childhood, in all the church services I attended, I only heard one sermon. And this eyes got larger, and people seemed curious and maybe even a little confused. One sermon in all those years? Claude continued, That sermon went like this. You are a sinner and you are going to hell. You need to repent and believe in Jesus. Jesus might come back today, and if he does, and you are not ready, you will burn forever in hell. At that moment, almost everyone began to laugh. They weren't laughing at the idea of going to hell or the idea of believing in Jesus. They were laughing in recognition that this was the only sermon they had ever heard, too. 
Sunday after Sunday, year after year, different words and different Bible verses, but they had the same point. Then Claude got serious. When I got older, I realized that my entire life had been lived against the backdrop of genocide and violence, poverty and corruption. Over a million people died in my country in a series of genocides starting in 1959, and nearly a million in Rwanda. And in spite of huge amounts of foreign aid, our people remain poor and many of them hungry. This is the experience that we all have shared. Around the room, people lean forward, their heads nodding. So much death, so much hatred and distrust between tribes, so much poverty, suffering, corruption, and injustice, and nothing ever really changed. Eventually, I realized something. I had never heard a sermon that addressed these realities. Did God only care about our souls going to heaven after we died? Were our hungry bellies unimportant to God? Was God unconcerned about our crying sons and frightened daughters, our mothers hiding under beds, our fathers crouching by windows, unable to sleep because of the gunfire outside? Or did God send Jesus to teach us how to avoid genocide by learning to love each other, how to overcome tribalism and poverty by following his path, how to deal with injustice and corruption, how to make a better life here on earth, here in East Africa. Claude walked a few steps closer to the center of the group, seated around long tables arranged in a semicircle. And he said, let me ask you a question. How many of you from Burundi and Rwanda have ever heard even one sermon telling Tutsi people to love and reconcile with Hutu people? Or Hutu people to love and reconcile with Tutsi? Or telling both Tutsi and Hutu to love the Twa as their neighbors and brothers and sisters? Two hands went up. Both, it turns out, were Anglican priests. And they had preached these sermons themselves in the aftermath of the genocide in Rwanda. But nobody else had heard even a single sermon addressing the most pressing issues of their lifetimes before or since the Rwandan genocide. Claude continued, Over the years, I've come to realize that something is wrong with the way we understand Jesus and the good news. Something is missing in the version of the Christian religion that we receive from the missionaries, which is the message that we now preach ourselves. They told us how to go to heaven, but they left out an important detail. They didn't tell us how the will of God could be done on earth. We need to learn what the message of Jesus says to our situation here in East Africa, and that is why we have come together. You know, over the last couple of weeks, as I've preached through this series called The Red and the Blue, what I've wanted to do is to talk with you about how we, as followers of Jesus, can live out our faith in the face of partisan politics in our nation. So we've talked about our need to be political without being jerks to each other. And we've talked about the kingdom that we are really trying to build, and that is the kingdom of God, not a kingdom of Democrats or Republicans. But today, I want to remind you of why we have come together. And we have come together for the same reason that Claude told the pastors of that conference in East Africa that they had come together. We have come together today 
so that the will of God could be done not only in the heavens above, but also right here on this earth. And God, God isn't only concerned about more souls finding their way inside of the pearly gates on the other side of eternity. God is also concerned about the hungry bellies that are waiting to be filled in our world and in our nation right now. So we should be concerned about those hungry bellies too. And God is concerned about crying sons and frightened daughters and mothers that are hiding under their beds while fathers crouch by their windows because of the violence in our world today. So we should be concerned about the violence that is happening in our world today too. And God is concerned about the hatred that has caused ongoing tensions in our nation and genocide across our world. So we should be concerned about that hatred too. And God is concerned with injustice and corruption that is happening all around us. So we should be concerned about the injustice and corruption too. God is concerned about all of the pain and all of the suffering that happens across this world. God wants this world to be a better place. God wants us to live in a world where we are all truly free and can enjoy our rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But it's not hard to look around and see that we're not there yet. There's still work that needs to be done. So right now, in the aftermath of another presidential election, we can sit back and we can celebrate that our preferred candidate is in the lead or we can be upset that our preferred candidate isn't. Or we can move past the red and the blue that divides us that we hear so much about every four years during a presidential election. And we can work together. We can work together to build a more perfect union. We can work together to make sure that everyone has the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We can work together to bring the kingdom of God to this world. So let's come together. Let's do the work that God has called us to do. Because here's the truth. Many of the problems that I've mentioned in the sermon they seem too big for us to do much about them. So we feel like we need to turn to elected officials, our president, our senators, our representatives, and leave these major problems to them. But we as followers of Jesus, we're not called to wash our hands of the hurting and the pain and the suffering in this world. We are called to be there, just like Jesus came to this earth and walked this earth with us. We need to be his hands and his feet. We need to be the ones that are working to form not only a more perfect union here in America, but we need to be the ones that are working to build the kingdom of God all across this world. But we can't do that if we allow things like politics to continue to divide us. We can't do that if we're more concerned about who is sitting in the Oval Office than we are about who is seated on the throne in heaven. We need to be the people of God. We need to come together to build the kingdom of God. We need to set the things that divide us aside and find the things that unite us and work together to build God's kingdom. We need to stop worrying about the red and worrying about the blue. And we need to start worrying about Jesus. So let's be the hands and the feet of Jesus in this world. Let's come together and show this world 
how much God loves and cares about every single one of us. Let's pray together. God, as we come to you in this time of prayer, you know everything that has been happening across our nation over the course of the last five days. You know about the results that are still that we're still awaiting God. You know about the ballots that we are still waiting to see counted, about the legal challenges that we are still waiting to hear rulings on. You know about how far we feel divided right now, God. It's about half of all Americans supported one party and candidate, and about half of all Americans supported the other. Right now, God, it feels like everything is pulling us apart. But God, let us be reminded of what we heard in this sermon, the words of Thomas Jefferson, but more importantly, the words of Jesus. God, we all have certain unalienable rights that you have given us, and we need to be coming together to work to make sure that everyone truly has these rights. We need to be your people so that when we come together, when we find people that are hurting, that are experiencing pain and suffering in their lives, God, that we can help them find rest in you. So let us set aside these partisan politics that have played out not just during this election, but in the lead up to it, God. And let us work together to build your kingdom. Let us work together to help the people that you made, God, all across this country and all across this earth. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hey, it's Adam again, and I just want to thank you for tuning in to this episode of our sermon podcast, and I hope that you've been challenged by what you've heard today to realize that our work as a nation and as followers of Jesus, it isn't done. We still need to be doing more to make our nation a more perfect union and to bring the kingdom of God to this earth. Now, we've got something big planned for our next episode, and it's actually one of my favorite services that we do every single year. As we start looking forward to Christmas, our church has been partnering with the Salvation Army and their Angel Tree program for the last five years, and we've helped over 300 kids in our community celebrate Christmas that way. Well, next week, we're going to be talking more about that work. We're going to let you know how you can join with us and partner with us in that work, and we're going to remind you why we, as followers of Jesus, are encouraged to give. So we hope that you'll come back and join us when that next episode drops Sunday at noon. As always, if you subscribe to our podcast, it'll be sent straight to your favorite podcasting app. Now, before we go, I've just got a couple of quick things for you. First, let me encourage you to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already done that, and leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast at. I also want to encourage you to join us any Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time on our church's website to worship with us live. You can find us at mhbclouisville.com. So until next time, guys, I hope that you have a great week, and we'll see you back here for another sermon podcast.